Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 22. And as you're turning there um, in your Bibles or you're looking there in your bulletin, I want to kind of set the scene for us because we are, we're, we're jumping in a little bit here. Um, you know, as many of you have been with us, we've been, we've been going through a series of, uh, of difficult questions uh, of, of, that are proposed to the Christian faith um, and seeking to see how the Bible answers some of those questions. And if you've noticed in, in every single one of those sermons, the big difference is Jesus. Jesus makes all of the difference in the world. And so today, we're, we're going to kind of step into the life of Jesus right towards the, the end of His life, before He goes to the cross. We're going to be looking at the cleansing of the temple. But leading up to the cleansing of the temple, what, what we also need to recognize is that this is right at the beginning of the passage, or right in the middle of the passage, that it's called like the triumphal entry. Jesus is coming back in, in, into Jerusalem. And, and, and the, the, the people that are there, uh, that are there worshiping in the temple, they're, they're coming in for Passover and everything, are saying to this Jesus, um, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He comes in on a donkey, which should say a little something to you about his purpose as he comes in for this last week of his life and before he goes to the cross. He doesn't come in on a war horse. He comes in on a donkey. He comes in bringing peace, reconciling man to God. And that is where we come into our text today of Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 22. And uh, I'll read this aloud as, as you guys follow along in your bulletin. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David! They were indignant. They said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. If you would please pray with us. Ah, Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it has the power to change our hearts. That it has the power to take these hearts of stone and soften them. Make them hearts of flesh. Hearts that recognize who Jesus is and what he's come and what he's done. Lord, we pray that, that our hearts would see that this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come and reveal that to us this day. We pray these things in the name of Christ our King. Amen. 
Now this story of Jesus coming in and cleansing the, the, the temple is actually a story that started a long, long time ago in the history of the people of God. You see, long ago there was a king. He was a king of a, of a small group of people who weren't very big. But he was also a king who had confidence that the one true God was on his side. And that he could do whatever God asked him to do. And so he made these big grand plans for his people. Well, he knew that one of the most crucial ways to ensure these grand plans was to make sure that his people were, were in a place that was um, geographically strategic. Okay? And there, there was this city that was, that was up, on a, up on a hill, almost like a, like a crack, like a rock that sticks out. And this king got in his mind, I'm going to go and overtake that city. I'm going to go and I'm going to take that city over. Now, there's a challenge at hand because a city that is in that place is a difficult city to take over, right? It's in a place where it's difficult to get to. You're coming up to them. They can look down at you. But if by chance you can actually get up there and overtake the city, then that's where you can reside. That's where you can have your place, and it's difficult for everybody else to come and attack, and to attack you. Well, this king of this small nation, he defeated all of the odds. He took this small army of people, and he overtook this city. And he planted his throne on the top of this rock, on the, on the top of this city. This is a story of King David and his sieging of Jerusalem. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 5, or 1 Chronicles 11, David comes and he sieges the city of Jerusalem with this small army. And he takes it over and he makes it the place where the people of God will come to worship the one true living God. And Jesus is coming into this city. He's actually already come into this city and now he's coming in to the temple. And we're going to see that he does three things in the city of Jerusalem and in the temple. One, we're going to see that he purges the temple. Two, we're going to see that he conducts healings in the temple. And then we're going to see that he responds to the accusations of the leaders in the temple. And then after he leaves the temple, he's going to give the disciples an object lesson. Uh, so let's, uh, let's take a look at the first, the first thing. Jesus purging the temple. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine your, yourself actually being there in the midst of this, okay? Being a bystander uh, in, in the temple, okay? You've come, uh, you're, you're coming to, to worship and to make your sacrifices. You're coming to Jerusalem for the Passover and everything. And then all of a sudden, this guy comes up in there, and he's turning over tables. He's lifting up people off of chairs, He's doing all kinds of what seems like really crazy stuff. And you're sitting there and you're just watching all of this happen. And you've got to be thinking to yourself, what in the world is going on here? And you, you, you could also be thinking to yourself, this dude has gone crazy. He's just loopy. He's just showing up in here and he's causing this, this huge ruckus. And at first glance, we can think that that's what Jesus is doing. That he's just acting off the cuff here. And he's coming in and he's just throwing across some tables and stuff like that. But the truth is, 
Jesus came in to the city on a donkey, and he could actually see what was going on in the temple as he was coming into the city. He could see what was what was going on in this temple where people were supposed to be worshiping in this temple. This isn't Jesus acting off of the cuff here. This is a premeditated act. Jesus has had time to think about what he's going to go and do. And he decides to come in and he's going to turn things upside down. He's going to turn these tables over. He's going to take people out of their seat and just lift them up and throw them out of their seat. But why? Why would he do that? What's the point in doing this? What's the big deal? Now, the truth is, the big deal is that people are conducting commerce in the place where people are supposed to be worshiping. Okay? That's a pretty, that's a pretty big deal. But the conduction of, of commerce in and within itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Okay? So there are a lot of people who are coming into Jerusalem for the Passover. And these, these people would be trying to bring animals for sacrifice with them, taking the chance of them getting dirty and becoming unclean and not becoming pure anymore. So the service that's being offered of, of selling these doves uh, and things like that and changing, and changing money, because these people would have been coming from somewhere where they wouldn't have had the currency of the Roman Empire... So they would have needed to exchange money to buy these things for these sacrifices. And within itself, that's not a bad thing. That's okay. They're providing a service that's a well-needed service. Often these people, they would come from far away. And so things would be just sold right there at the temple so that these people would come and they would have a clean, pure sacrifice to offer in the temple. But there is a really big issue going on here. It's being done in the temple. It's being done in the place where worship is supposed to be happening. And the place where it's actually being done is in the court of the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles would have been those people who were not Jewish. Who were not ethnically a part of the people of God. Though the plan of God has always been that the nations would be reached. We see that all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. God has set aside a people for himself in Israel. And he's also incorporated the Gentiles into this in giving them a place where they can come and worship in the temple. And these money changers, these people selling these doves, they're doing their commerce in the court of the Gentiles. Now that's a big deal because that's the furthest that the Gentiles can come in the temple. It's the furthest place that they can come and they can actually worship God. And these people are using it as a place of business. And so Jesus has had time to think about this. Jesus comes in to Jerusalem and he sees what's going on and he is indignant about it. That these people would be selling and changing money in a place where the Gentiles were supposed to come and they were supposed to worship the one true living God. It's a big deal. 
the Israelites are trying to keep out the Gentiles from worshiping. Now, in verse 13, we see that Jesus said something to these money changers, to these people conducting commerce in this place after he has torn up their tables. He said, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. My house shall be called a house of prayer. This quotation comes from Isaiah chapter 56. Now the context of Isaiah chapter 56, it shows us that God has a concern for salvation not only for the Jews, but for the nations. God's scope is not just for this one set specific people. It's for the whole of humanity. And so he calls them out. And he uses Isaiah chapter 56. It's no coincidence. He uses, he uses a chapter and a verse that would have, they would have specifically known that God is talking about the nations there. That this man is coming and he is talking about the nations. Now, the, the whole den of robbers thing is also very, very good. You've turned it into a den of robbers. That actually comes from Jeremiah chapter 7. Jesus plays on the words of Jeremiah. And this is what he's pointing out. He's pointing out that the condemnation is for worshipers who live in sin outside of the temple and then enter into the house of God to hide from their sin. They live in sin outside of the temple, these money changers. And then they come in as a means of trying to hide their sin from God. Trying to protect that. As if you can trick God. As if you can't actually hide your sin from Him. We also see that the chief priests and the leaders have basically made it impossible for these Gentiles to come in and to worship in the court of the Gentiles. They've allowed this to happen. They've let it go on without saying anything about it. They've let this commerce be set up in the court of the Gentiles. They've taken away the one place that the Gentiles can come and worship. They've taken away the one place where the nations can come and worship in the temple. In this moment, Jesus exposes all of the roles that He plays he plays the role of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king. And in this one moment, he displays that he is a prophet by calling the people of Israel for not using the sacrificial system properly. He displays that he is the great high priest by overseeing the proper use of the temple, its worship and its sacrifices. And he displays that he is the king by exercising authority over the governing, over the, governing the central system of Israel's faith the centerpiece of Israel's identity in the temple. He is prophet, he is priest, and he is king, and he is exercising all of that authority in this one moment in the cleansing of the temple. Now, it could be easy for us to sit back and say, that's right, Jesus, you get them. Right? You go in there, you tear the place up. Let me ask you this. How often have we used 
the gifts that God has given us selfishly for the benefit of ourselves. See, I would say if we're honest with ourselves, we, we may actually resonate with these money changers and <laughs> these people um, creating commerce in the temple. If we really search the depths of our own heart, how often do we use our, our gifts for our own gain? The good things that the Lord has given us to make ourselves look better. Many of you are here and you have siblings. You have older siblings, you have younger siblings. Now, I find that this kind of plays out in the context of a family really well. You see, big brothers and big sisters, you know that you often have the ability to get your younger, younger siblings to just do what you want them to do. Oh, and all of you are sitting here saying, oh, but I don't live with my brothers and sisters anymore. You still do it. <laughs> I don't care how grown you are. You're a big brother, big sister. You can, you can kind of coerce your younger brother, your younger sister, to get them to do what you want them to do. Do you use that power from your own game? In, in your family setting? Or are you thinking of the best interests of your younger siblings? Now, younger siblings, you don't actually get away either. Okay? And again, this, this goes all throughout life as well. You know that as the younger one, mom and dad are generally going to side with you because you're the baby. You're the one who gets the protection. Do you abuse the sensitivity of your parents and accuse your older siblings of things that maybe they haven't really done? Maybe you're here and you're thinking, well, I don't misuse any of the gifts that God has given me. Well, I would say that you're misusing the gift of confidence there. Your confidence should be in the Lord, not in yourself. How often do we misuse the gifts that God gives us? And you see these, these money changers, these chief priests, these people, they're, they're, they're given roles of leadership. They're given roles of taking care of the people of God, of providing a service for the people of God. And they misuse those roles. They seek for their own gain, for their own profit. Well, this leads us to kind of the next scene of action where Jesus heals the blind and the lame in the temple. Let's look back at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now, in order to understand the full force of, of what's going on here in the healing of the blind and the lame, we actually need to look back to 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to look, we're going to look at verses 6 through 10, actually. If you want to turn there, if you have a Bible, God, I'm, going to, I'm going to read it aloud for you. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here. But the blind and the lame will ward you off. Thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that lane, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who were hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. 
In this text, we see that King David says that the blind or the lame will not enter this palace. What Jesus is doing here, Jesus is widening open the door for everyone to enter. For all who desire to be able to enter into the presence of the Lord. Whether they're blind or lame, it doesn't matter. Jesus comes to heal all people. Jesus opens the door. Jesus says, you see that David guy? He was just a forerunner to me. I'm the one who opens up the temple. I'm the one who opens up the place of worship for all people. Whether they're lame, whether they're blind, whether they're Jew, whether they're Gentile, it doesn't matter. I am the one. I'm bigger and I'm greater than David. Which in that place and time for an Israelite would have been the closest thing to blasphemy that you really could have gotten to. Because David is so highly thought of. Thinking back to the triumphal entry, Hosanna, Hosanna, the one who comes in the name of David. The one who comes in the name of David. We recognize this guy is of David's line coming into us. The one who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus says, I'm bigger, I'm better, I'm greater than David. And after this action, after he heals the lame and the blind, we see the response of the chief priests and the scribes. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Notice the response of the chief priests and the scribes. Notice they respond to Jesus healing people and Jesus receiving children, but, but not to the money changers conducting commerce in the temple. They're indignant about Jesus healing people. They're indignant about Jesus coming in and changing people's lives forever. They have nothing to say about the money changers over here. They want Jesus. They want to get at Jesus. They also show their indignation that the, the children cry out that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the one who's the son of David. Jesus is the anticipated Messiah, the king to come save Israel from her bondage. And yet the leaders of the people of Israel don't recognize who he is. When they ask Jesus about what his thoughts are on what these children are saying, what does Jesus say? He says, yes. And he never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. This is a quote from Psalm 8 that we read during our pastoral prayer, during the intercessory prayer. When Jesus quotes this, he is saying that he receives the adulation that is only meant for the one true God. You see, the personal name that's used there, capital L-O-R-D, would have been God's actual personal name that He gave the people of Israel when He brought them out of Egypt, slavery and bondage in Egypt, and He gave them His law. He gave them the Ten Commandments. It is this personal name of God that is used in Psalm 8. And Jesus says, I'm Him. 
your right and proper worship and praise is due to me. That's what he's saying to them here. He's saying, you don't recognize who I am. You, the leaders, the chief priests, the leaders of the people of God, you don't recognize who I am. The blind and the lame, they get it. The children, they get it. They see it. And yet you don't recognize who I am. Do we recognize who Jesus is? Do we recognize the claims that He's making here? You know, often our culture can tell us, yeah, Jesus was a great teacher and He was a really good moral person. Um, and so we should follow His teachings because of that. Um, Jesus says, no, I'm God. I'm not just some great teacher, some moral person. I am God come in human flesh. To redeem a people. To fix this broken world. To fix the hurt and the pain that we experience every single day. To fix the sin in this world. That's who I am. I'm not just some teacher. I'm not just someone who's moral for you to follow. I am God. And when we recognize that, when we see that, you can actually see why... The, the leaders and the chief priests respond the way they do in, in seeking to crucify Jesus. Because if he was just claiming to be a good teacher or a good moral person, they wouldn't have done anything with him. The truth of the matter is, Jesus is claiming to be God himself. And if he is not that, then he deserves to die. But if he is, he deserves our worship. And Jesus says that he is that person. Well, Jesus leaves the temple and he goes and he spends the night away from the temple. And he wakes up the next morning to come back into the city. And this is where we come to this object lesson where he curses the fig tree. It's a parabolic comment on what Jesus has just done in the temple that he's giving his disciples. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come for you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Jesus wakes up in the morning. He's heading on his way back into the city. And he's like, Oh, wait, I forgot breakfast. So I need to eat something. And he stops by this fig tree. Now we need to know something about fig trees here. The house that I grew up in uh, had a fig tree that, that bordered the property of our next-door neighbor. And it was a really big fig tree. And if you know anything about fig leaves, the leaves are they're huge. Uh, they're, they're really, really big. And when there are leaves on the tree, there's also fruit on the tree. When there aren't any leaves on the tree, there's not supposed to be any fruit. But Jesus walks up to this tree, assuming this is a tree that has leaves on it, this is a fig tree with leaves on it, there should be some fruit here. And what does he find? He finds that there is actually no fruit at all. You see, it, if there are leaves on a fig tree, then there should be fruit there. When there are no leaves, there is no fruit. 
What Jesus is saying here is that the fig tree is just like the people of Israel. They have all the external aesthetic things going on. But there's no fruit because their heart hasn't been affected and hasn't been changed. Seemingly they've got it all together. Everything's the way it's supposed to be. But in reality, it's not. Their hearts are hardened. They are not recognizing who Jesus really is. Jesus curses the fig tree just as He cursed the people the day before. He turns to the tree into what it should look like externally, and it's bearing no fruit. The barren tree, it symbolizes the sin and the corruption in the nation of Israel. And Jesus responds to the disciples in verse 21. Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. He responds to the disciples by telling them how they can share in the power of the true Davidic King. If the disciples would truly believe that Jesus is who He says He is, if they will recognize Him for who He really is, then their power will extend further than the acts of this fig tree. And we see those miraculous acts in the book of Acts, where we have things like Pentecost, where we have the healing of the lame, the inclusion of the Gentiles. Jesus is saying it's a much greater task for people's hearts to change than for mountains to be moved. Than for fig trees to be just withered up. And you guys, if you really recognize who I am, you're going to get the opportunity to take part in that. You're going to get the opportunity to spread the truth of who I am. That I've come to save people. That I've come to fix this broken world. You're going to get the opportunity to join in with that. And we see the New Testament church flow out of this promise here. When we read this passage, how do we respond to what we're being told by the Word of God here? How does your heart respond to this? Is it our general reaction to say to ourselves, yeah, you know, I can think of some things in my own life where people have done me wrong and they deserve to have some righteous judgment upon them. If that's, your, if that's your reaction, then I would say that, that you're reading the passage wrong. You see, the passage calls us to do an internal search of our own hearts. To seek to, to get at the depths of our own sinfulness, our own need for Jesus, our own need to recognize who Jesus is and what He's come to do. We're the recipients of this message. And we should respond by searching the depths of our own heart here. So the places where God has given us good gifts and gifted us, are, are we seeing fruit in those areas? Or do we use those gifts as a means of benefiting ourselves? Do we recognize our own sinfulness, 
our own proneness to flee from God, to flee from Jesus and what He's done, and, and, and to seek to fill our lives with things that we think are going to satisfy us, that we think are going to fulfill us and give us contentment, but in reality we know that's not true, don't we? Because the, the more we pursue those things, the emptier we feel inside. I mean, I have to say in my own life, a place where I really struggle with this is with is with my children. I I expect a lot out of my children. I expect them to act older than they are. Uh, I expect them to do everything the first time that I tell them to do it. And, and the Lord has has really convicted my heart that. I'm, I don't exactly show the grace toward them that's been shown to me in Jesus. And in those moments as, um, as parents, and this doesn't even necessarily have to work in a parental relationship, maybe you expect more out of your friends than you should. Maybe you're expecting your friends to give you fulfillment, contentment, and satisfaction instead of looking to Jesus. You know, the right thing to do in those moments, whether whether your parents, whether whether your friends, whether your husbands, whether your wives, is to go to that individual and say, "I messed up. I I need your forgiveness. I need Jesus to forgive me. To own up to our sinfulness. Because I think we have this idea in our minds." That what it really means to grow in the Christian faith is that we can we can actually sort of take a tally and say, well, I sinned less today than I did yesterday. And that's, that, that's the marker of whether or not we're actually growing in the Christian faith. I would say that maybe a better marker of whether or not we're growing in the Christian faith, as one of my professors from seminary put it, is, is how quick you are to respond to the own sinfulness in your heart, to admit to that, and to go and ask forgiveness of those you sin against. It's not about keeping a tally. It's not about does the good outweigh the bad. The truth is we're all sinners. That's why we need Jesus. We need Jesus to come and make it all right. And so are we responding to that? Are we seeking to live lives in light of that reality that Jesus is the one who satisfies, that Jesus is the one who fulfills, that Jesus is the one where I can find true and real contentment? Are you here and maybe you don't recognize Jesus for who He is? Maybe you don't like this Jesus because He upsets everything inside of me. I'm not too cool with the claims that He's making. The authority that he's claiming that he has over, over my life. Well, let me ask you this. Have you, have you found contentment yet at all? I mean, have you been able to find contentment in, in, in the things that you, you place your trust in? The things that you place your faith in? Or are you still wrestling inside? I think the truth is, if you're honest with yourself, you're still wrestling inside. You're still looking for something to really satisfy, to give you that deep soul satisfaction that only Jesus can give, that only the gospel can truly give. You see, Jesus doesn't wish that we would wither like the fig tree. He longs for us 
to bear fruit. Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 through 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within the full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy. And then verses 37 through 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. See, your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to You a broken people. We come to You as those who are sinners in need of great grace. And we recognize that Your forgiveness and Your grace is so much bigger than our sin. We thank You so much that You, not, you did not leave us in the depths of our sin, but that You bought us with a price. That You sacrificed Your own life so that we might be called sons and daughters of the living God, those who are recipients of His promises, those who are the recipients of a promised kingdom that will, that will one day come and there will no longer be any sin. There will no longer be any hurt or pain or suffering, but you yourself will wipe every tear away from all And we will live forever in eternity, dwelling when heaven and earth become one. Lord, help us to long for that day. Help us to long for it deep down in our hearts and to find our satisfaction in Jesus and in Jesus alone. In His name we pray. Amen. Yeah.